السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد So last week we, uh, we kind of shifted from our usual tafsir class and we'd um, gone on to a topic which is uh, something to do with the methodology of tafsir. And we said that inshallah ta'ala this is something that we're going to do periodically over time and that is uh, going through the biographies of some of the more famous authors of tafsir and compilers of tafsir and their methodology in their books and their works of tafsir. So last week we began with an Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala and we discussed uh, the vast majority of his life and um, really to, to go into so much detail or to go into adequate detail concerning his life and his methodology in tafsir, I think to be honest we could take probably four or five lessons to really go into detail and go into his tafsir and his methodology and um, how he approaches tafsir and the various different components of tafsir uh, and its principles, we could go into a great amount of detail. We don't have, I think, number one, the time to be able to do that because if you took out four or five lessons every single time, that's going to build up to quite a lot. And also, um, I'm not sure if it's the kind of level of detail uh, that we, we want to go in necessarily as part of this. So what we, inshallah ta'ala, um, want to do is these kind of like sessions will be, inshallah, like two lessons, one to two lessons where we discuss their biography and we discuss the methodology of tafsir in brief terms and then inshallah ta'ala we go back to our usual tafsir class. So last week we, dis we discussed the vast majority of the life of Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala. We discussed his birthplace, we discussed his upbringing, we discussed his teachers and some of his students as well as some of his, um, his works. And one of the things that has come from that is that we saw that he was a prolific scholar in his own right. A, an imam, a mujtahid, someone who um, you know, was a trailblazer in many ways in terms of the books that he authored, uh, someone who Allah was an expert not only in the science of tafsir but in hadith and in history and in qiraat and in Arabic grammar and language and in many of the disciplines and fields of Islamic knowledge. We come towards the end of his life and <clears throat> the last component that we, uh, I want to mention, there's a lot of other stuff that we can mention, his ibadah, his worship, his humbleness, his piety, his wara', his um, ast, you know, abstinence from the dunya, ascetism, all of that kind of stuff that we can cover in detail. But the final part that I want to focus on, inshallah ta'ala, before we move on to his methodology and his tafsir, is his death. And slightly before his death, the circumstances that led to his death, or that were not necessarily led to his death, but the final couple of years before he passed away, rahimahullah ta'ala. And that is that he suffered a major trial. And that's not something which is unique to Imam al-Tabari, but there were many great scholars of Islam who towards or some part of their life or towards end of their life, they had to undergo a serious trial. Imam Ahmad rahimahullah is an example. And he's only someone who comes a few years before Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah is another example. There were illustrious scholars who, for whatever reason, were imprisoned or had problems and that goes all the way back to even the time of the companions beginning with Uthman radiallahu anh, and his assassination so it's something which is uh, you know it's found within our history for different reasons and for various circumstances there were scholars and companions who had difficulty and trial within this life from them is al-imam al-tabari rahimahullah ta'ala and his mihna or his trial begins um, in Iraq where he later settled and that's where he would pass away ta'ala, and it kind of came about as a result of a couple of things that were disseminated concerning him. Iraq at that time is a place now where the Hanbali madhab is the dominant madhab. The teachings of Imam Ahmad based upon Imam Ahmad and his fame and his, uh, the acceptance that Allah gave to him in that part of the world and especially since Imam Ahmad went through his own trial of the creation of the Quran and the issue that he went through with the Abbasid leaders and the rulers is something that the people then um, you know, like accepted him and they, and they followed his teachings and they took after him. So Iraq became his madhab. Uh, the, the area of Iraq was known for the madhab of the Hanabila. Within Iraq, 
that's the main madhab and that's what people are known for and so on. They began to be an attack of character, an attack on the character of Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala for a number of things, right? All of them are unfounded. However, like one of the things that they said was that he is someone who has uh, a, a level of Shi'ism within him, Imam al-Tabari. And that's because he gathered a number of a hadith that spoke about the virtues of Ali radiallahu anhu because he found some people were, uh, were demeaning or belittling the status of Ali radiallahu anhu. So he gathered a number of hadith concerning his fadail, right? And his, and his station and his status. And they are, you know, and, and no doubt Ali radiallahu anhu has that status within Islam. But some people took that and they twisted it and they manipulated it. And this is a lesson, right? Because we see this even till today when people get involved who don't have knowledge, who don't have that, um, that background of scholarship, when people's desires come in, and especially amongst contemporaries, it is an extremely dangerous thing to go to someone's contemporary, another scholar, and ask about another scholar, a da'i, ask about a fellow da'i, what do you think, what did he say, and so on. Because always amongst people who are contemporaries, just as you have in the workspace, in the work field, amongst colleagues, amongst people who are working together, business partners and so on, even siblings, right? Anyone within that same kind of level, there is always an element, or in most cases, there is an element of competition, there is an element of problem, there is an element of, of um, you know, sometimes jealousy and so on. That's human nature. That's the way that it is. And sometimes that boils out, right? You will find it if you go back to the life of Imam Malik, rahimahullah, with some of his contemporaries. And you will find it uh, you know, amongst many of the scholars that sometimes there's, there, there were scholars who said about Imam Malik that he was a weak narrator. And this is Imam Malik, right? Imam Malik is one of the greatest scholars of Islam and one of the most prolific narrators of hadith, one of the most knowledgeable of his, of his time. And Imam al-Bukhari and others put him in the golden chain of narrators. You know, those like narrators that are untouchable in, in terms of the narration of the hadith of the Prophet But some of the contemporaries of Imam Malik considered him to be weak. Because they had that personal rivalry and that personal thing that going on. And scholars, despite their knowledge and their position, are still human, right? And they are still people who are uh, prone to those temptations of shaitan. Anyway, the point here being that it, this is one of the things that was said about Imam al-Tabri. Another thing that was said about Imam al-Tabri, and this is perhaps the major catalyst of what took place, is that they claim that Imam al-Tabri didn't honor or didn't revere Al-Imam Ahmad rahimahullah ta'ala. He didn't respect him as a scholar. Didn't consider him to be a faqih. Didn't consider him to be someone who was a, a scholar in his own right in terms of the field of fiqh. So Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, that's incorrect. Imam al-Tabari considered Imam Ahmad to be a mujtahid. Uh, not only a scholar or a faqih, but someone who uh, has the ability to go back to the text of the Quran and the Sunnah and introduce rulings and derive rulings and set up his own madhab as he did and so on. Uh, however, this was something which became prevalent. And what they would do, these people who were blind followers of the, of the Hanbali Madhab, people who are you know, either general folk or they're beginning students of knowledge, they would go and they would take these types of accusations to their shuyukh and to their scholars from the Hanbali Madhab and say, this is what Imam al-Tabari says and this is what he does and this is what I... And sometimes those scholars wouldn't, as you know, even today you get when someone comes to you with some news, they don't double check. They don't verify, they don't ask, they just take it to be the truth and then they base their rulings upon it. One of those scholars that Imam al-Tabari had this issue with was the son of Imam Abu Dawood, rahimahullah ta'ala, Abu Dawood, the famous scholar of hadith, the compiler of Sunan Abi Dawood. His son, the son of Imam Abu Dawood, his name is Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr Abdullah ibn Abi Dawood. And he's a great scholar in his own right. He's from the teachers of Ibn Hibban and Adara Qutni. And many scholars are from his students. He is a, a, a scholar. Some of the scholars said that he was more knowledgeable than his father. Surpassed his father in the science of hadith. Anyway, he was one of those people that, had, that was brought into this issue. People would take these accusations to him and he would say things about Imam Tabari and vice versa and so on. And so it became a big issue. Because they are the majority. And Al-Imam Al-Tabari, as we said last week, isn't someone who follows any madhab. Doesn't follow the Hanbali madhab, doesn't follow the Shafi'i madhab, doesn't follow any madhab. He is a scholar in his own right and he has a madhab in his own right. right? And so because he didn't fit in to those uh, you know, boxes or those, those kind of um, you know, 
what the people understood in terms of how to follow fiqh and so on, they had this issue against him. He had students and he had people that supported him, but they were the minority. So what ended up happening, to cut a long story short, is that they literally placed him under house arrest. Not by government or by rule. This wasn't the rule of the, the Khalifa saying this or the governor or anyone. The people themselves, as they did in the time of Uthman radiallahu anh, where the people took the matter into their own hands and they came and they just literally placed Uthman radiallahu anh in the house arrest, wouldn't allow anyone to go near him, wouldn't allow people to visit him, wouldn't allow food and water to enter into him. They just took on you know, the mob rule, took on uh, putting him under house arrest. Something similar happened to Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala. So he's placed in this condition where he is in under house arrest for all intents and purposes. So Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala is placed under house arrest. And this is like a year or perhaps even two years before his death, rahimahullah ta'ala. He died in the year 310 Hijri. So this is like a couple of years before this. So the students would come and they would enter into his house at the beginning and that's where they would study with Imam al-Tabari after a while. Those students are lessened. Not everyone's allowed to come in. Only some people are allowed to come in. Others are not over time. Even that stopped and only very few people can come in. So that is not even teaching, but it's just close friends and people that he knew while that would be allowed to enter. And they are literally choosing who comes to visit Imam al-Tabari and who doesn't, um, you know, who doesn't uh, come in and visit Imam al-Tabari rahimahullahu ta'ala. So Imam al-Tabari at this time is in his 80s. He's not a young man, he's in his 80s. He spent a lifetime of traveling. As we said, he was someone who traveled extensively throughout the Muslim world, seeking knowledge, learning hadith, gathering narrations. He's someone who's been writing and authoring. So he's taken his toll upon him. And he's in his 80s, rahimahullah ta'ala. So he spends literally his last few months, uh, perhaps up to a year or more, under this type of house arrest, where the people who are coming in to see him Lesson and lesson and lesson, and that continues until he dies in the month of Shawwal in the year 310 Hijri. Something which shows you the character of Imam al-Tabari is that a scholar by the name of Abu Bakr ibn Kamil, who's from the students of Imam al-Tabari, he said that I came to Imam al-Tabari and visited him shortly before his death. And I said to him, O oh, Imam, will you forgive everyone who did this to you? Those people who placed you under house arrest, they spread these rumors about you, they harmed you. Will you forgive them and pardon them? And Imam al-Tabari said, I have forgiven all of them, except those who claimed that I was an innovator. Those who attacked my aqidah, my religion, said that I brought innovation into Islam. That's something that I don't forgive because of obviously the seriousness and the graveness of that accusation. But everyone else I have forgiven. Right? And that's very similar to Imam Ahmad Ta'ala, who other than the leaders of the attacks against him, he said that I forgive everyone else. Uh, another of his uh, contemporaries, Abu Bakr al-Dinuri, he says that I entered upon Imam al-Tabri on the Monday that he passed away. And Imam al-Tabri was ill, he was old in age, he had aches, he had pains, and he's been under this almost house arrest for a number of months. He said, so we came to him and we said to him, Imam al-Tabri, we said to him, why don't you combine between the prayers? Dhuhr and Asr, Maghrib and Isha, you're ill, you're old, you're in these you know, extreme circumstances, and it's allowed for people who have a valid excuse to combine between the prayers. He said that Imam al-Tabari refused, wouldn't combine his prayers, meaning even till the end, he's someone, a man who continues to worship Allah, pray, even though it's difficult for him physically, and you know, like he's got all of these issues going on, he will still pray each prayer at his proper time. He doesn't just take the concession that is available. Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, died on that Monday, rahimahullah ta'ala, towards the end of the day, and he passed away. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah, the famous scholar, and obviously a scholar of tafsir as well, but also a biographer in his own right, he says concerning Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he died in his house and he was buried in his house. He says those people that came and they placed him under house arrest wouldn't even allow his body to be removed from the house, that he should be taken to a masjid where people can pray his janazah and be buried in the graveyard of the Muslims. So they insisted that he be buried where he was. So people would come to him, to his house, and they would pray there because basically his house becomes his graveyard as well. 
Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala says that some of the narrations say that, it, that that continued for months. People would come and they would pray because there's a limited amount of space. So people would come and they would pray his janazah and leave and another group of people come and that continued for weeks and for months until he passed away, uh, until you know, that finished, rahimahullah ta'ala. So that is a brief biography of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, this amazing scholar who I think is rarely spoken about and rarely acknowledged in terms of his contribution to Islam and in terms of, uh, you know, especially in tafsir, but in terms of just generally the scholarship that he brings to our religion, rahimahullah ta'ala. Going on to his tafsir, um, tafsir of Imam al-Tabari and his methodology in his tafsir. We're going to speak about this in, in general terms, what he mentions in his introduction himself, his main goals and objectives of penning his tafsir, of compiling his tafsir. And then we're also going to go, inshallah ta'ala, into some of the details and give some examples. Uh, and inshallah ta'ala, we will do all of that by the end of today's session. His tafsir is famously known as tafsir al-tabari, right? That's what everyone calls tafsir, his tafsir, tafsir al-tabari. But that's not what he called his tafsir. That's not the name that he gave to it. It's just become famous. It's become, you know, like tafsir ibn Kathir and many of these tafsir al-Qurtubi, many of the tafsir that we attribute to their authors, their actual books are not called that. No scholar called his own tafsir, my tafsir, right? They have names for it. But just over time, it's become famous with another name. Like Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih al-Bukhari has a very long name. It's an official name. It's not Sahih al-Bukhari, but it's just become known as Sahih al-Bukhari over time. So the name of the book of uh, of Imam al-Tabari's tafsir is Jami' al-Bayan an ta'wili ayi al-Qur'an Jami' al-Bayan Jami' is something which is comprehensive Bayan, an explanation an ta'wil, ta'wil means the interpretation, the tafsir ayi is the plural of verses ayah from its plurals is ayi, ayat and ayi ayi al-Qur'an so the comprehensive explanation of the interpretation of the verses of the Qur'an that's the name that he gave it Right? But obviously it is more well known as Tafsir al-Tabari to the extent that I think if you would say that name to most people, they'd be like, I don't know what that is. Right? What are you referring to? So that's an example of how something becomes famous by a name other than the name that was given to it originally. Al-Imam al-Tabari says himself, he said that I prayed istikhara to Allah and asked him for help for three years before I began to compile my Tafsir. Three years I prayed istikhara to Allah and asked for his assistance before I made the decision to compile my tafsir. Right? And that's amazing that these scholars will put in so much time and effort in dua and istikhara before taking a decision such as the one that they take in terms of writing a book or compiling a book. Right? It's like Imam al-Bukhad, they say that he, with every hadith he would pray two rak'ahs with every hadith that he entered into his sahih. That's not only, you know, like scholarship and, and knowledge and whatever, but it is an amazing level of ibadah and dedication and commitment to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to have that discipline, to do that for every single hadith. Imam al-Tabari is praying istikhara for three years according to one of the things that he narrates. Another narration says that Imam al-Tabari ta'ala said to his students and in other narrations his students asked him to write for them a book of tafsir. So he asked them to bring them 30,000 pages that he could write for them a book of tafsir. And they said, that's too much, it's too big. 30,000 pages is too long. So he said to them, bring me 3,000 pages and I will write for you tafsir. And it is from those 3,000 pages that we have tafsir al-tabari. What he wanted to have was 10 times its size. Right? And it's the longest tafsir that we have they wanted 10 times that time. And what's amazing is Imam al-Tabari's tafsir is not just him saying, I think and I want and I say, and it is narrations after narrations after narrations. The fact that he has 10 times as much narrations, right? And, and, and you get that from you know, his other books. All of his books are like encyclopedias, whether it's on history. His Qiraat book, which we don't have anymore, and we'll come on to this, it is said that it was 18 volumes, just on the science of Qiraat, right? 18 volumes. And so it's something which perhaps Allah Azza wa knows best he was going to bring all of it into tafsir because obviously tafsir is something that you can bring in history and qiraat and Arabic grammar and everything else. But anyway, that's something which he wanted to do. And so he summarized, this is the summary of his tafsir. 
right? This is the summarized version of the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala. Imam al-Tabari, it said that he would write 40 pages a day, generally. That's how much he would write a day. He would author 40 pages a day. That's how he was able to, in his lifetime, you know, bring out so many of these books. Unfortunately, many of them, many of the books that are attributed to him and that are mentioned by the early scholars are no longer in our possession. They didn't reach us. So we have some of the, you know, his book of history is around, his tafsir of Tabari obviously is around and so on, but not every book reached us. Many of his books, like his Qiraat book, for example, isn't something which survived till our time. And Imam Ibn Jarir, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, I am amazed by those who read the Qur'an and they don't understand it. How can they possibly enjoy the Qur'an? Right, that's one of the statements that he mentions, rahimahullah ta'ala. I'm amazed by those who read the Qur'an without understanding how is it possible for them to enjoy the Qur'an. Ibn al-Jarir rahimahullah ta'ala, he dictated his tafsir. So what seems to be the case is rather than him necessarily writing it himself, he dictated. And that's why you often find in his tafsir, qala Abu Ja'far. Abu Ja'far said, right? And obviously if you're writing on book, you don't say Ahsan said, right? That's not how you write. But why are they saying qala Abu Ja'far? Because his students are dictating. And so they're trying to show where Imam al-Tabri is commentating and the narrations that they're bringing from other scholars and other, uh, other you know, like um, companions and so on. So he dictated this. It's said that he began in the year 283 of the Hijrah and he finished in the year 290. So we're talking about how many? Like seven years right, of dictation. And then it's said that his students read it to him a final time in the year 306 of the Hijrah. He died in the year 310. So 306 Hijri, they read it to him a final time. And so it's something which he, you know, he says he accepts and so on. And there are some narrations uh, where it's said that, that some of the people who were around him at the time of his death asked him for final advice, final words. And one of the things that he said to them is take the knowledge that I have left for you in my books. That's my, that's my legacy. Right, what I've given to you from the knowledge that you find within my books, take that and benefit from it. That is the legacy that I have left behind, rahimahullahu ta'ala. The scholars have agreed, like there's hardly a scholar who except that he will say that tafsir al-Tabri is perhaps the greatest work of tafsir. And it's not just an amazing work of tafsir, it is an amazing work in Islamic knowledge full stop, generally. And Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullahu ta'ala said, Ajma'at al-Ummah, the Ummah has united that there, is nothing, there has been nothing authored like the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari because his tafsir contains qiraat, it contains Arabic, it contains poetry, it contains fiqh, it contains so many different things within that single tafsir. Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala was asked for the most authentic tafsir and he said that the most authentic tafsir that we have is the tafsir of al-Tabari. And that doesn't mean that Tabari's tafsir, everything within it is authentic in terms of narrations, but what he means is that number one, he's given to you chains of narration by which you can see and go back and determine what is authentic or not authentic. And number two, his own commentary is something which is based firmly upon authentic knowledge, upon classical knowledge. He goes back to the Quran, the Sunnah, the statements of the companions, the Tabi'een. And so Imam Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah says that it is from the most, um, it is the most authentic work of tafsir that we have. Ibn Atiyah who's also a famous scholar of tafsir, has a famous book of tafsir known as Tafsir Ibn Atiyah. He says that Imam Al-Tabari he gathered for the people the various strands of tafsir and brought them together. So all of these narrations that were dispersed, right? Ibn Abbas says, and Abdullah ibn Mas'ud says, and Mujahid says, and so on and so forth. And all of these different narrations that are everywhere, he brought them together within a single work. And that is one of the greatest contributions that he made. And not only that, but he placed each one of them with their chain. So you would know exactly who Imam al-Tabari got it from, all the way back to those scholars of Islam. And Imam al-Suyuti, rahimahullah ta'ala, said, his book of tafsir is the greatest of the books of tafsir. It is something within which he mentions not only the statements of the scholars, but he tells you which are more stronger, which are more correct. And he mentions within it his deductions and his own deriving of rulings rahimahullah ta'ala and we mentioned I think last week the statement of some of the scholars who said that if you had to travel all the way to China to get tafsir al-Tabari it would be worth the trip it would be worth and that's obviously their time not today when it's a 10 hour flight right it's like when you're talking about the other side that literally the end of the world as they knew it
That's what it means. If you had to go to the end of the world to get the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari, it would be worth it because of what it contains. Rahimahullah ta'ala, may Allah Azza wa have mercy upon this great Imam. Al-Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala mentions his own methodology or mentions some of his methodology in his, um, in his tafsir, in his introduction to his tafsir. And he mentions that he's going to do a number of things or one of the things or his, the objectives that he has from his tafsir is to do a number, accomplish a number of things. Number one is to bring together all of these different statements and opinions of tafsir. So what he gathered from the companions, from the students of the companions and from their students. So the first three generations of scholars to bring all of their statements of tafsir together. That's the first thing. Number two, then to order them, to order them. So you'll find within his tafsir is, it's a very nice tafsir in terms of the way that he orders them. For example, if there's multiple opinions, he will say, some of them said that, and, and we'll give a couple of examples of this later on, some of them said that this means such and such. And these are the scholars who said this, and then he will mention his narrations with his chain of narrators going back to those scholars, that this is what they said. And then he'll go to the next body of opinion. The second opinion, other scholars said that this means such and such. Who said this? And then he will mention his narrations. And so not only did he gather them together, he could have very easily just jumbled them all together. And so it's very difficult to understand and read and determine who said what and how many scholars said this opinion or that opinion. But what he does is he actually puts them into some order. He mentions who... Uh, who came with these opinions with the chain of narration and that is also something which is extremely important and then what he does is he also mentions his own commentary right what he considers to be correct or incorrect or strong or weak or whether you can reconcile and bring all of those different opinions together and they all actually mean the same thing or whether there is a contradiction between them and so you have to choose not only in terms of the tafsir opinions, but then looking in light of Arabic language and grammar and poetry and the different principles of the Quran and the Sunnah and so on. So one of the discussions that you know, like um, scholars have is how to define what is called tafsir al-ma'thur and tafsir al-ra'i. So we mentioned this last year when we were speaking about an introduction to tafsir. There are two general forms of tafsir. One is tafsir bil-athar, which is tafsir of narrations based on narrations, and one is tafsir of ra'i, which means basically opinion, tafsir of ra'i, right? What is tafsir al-ma'thur and tafsir al-ra'i? How do you define this? Some scholars see tafsir al-ma'thur is just mentioning narrations. Ibn Abbas said, Ibn Mas'ud said, Sha'bi said, you know, Mujahid said, Ikrimah said, Qatada said, and it is just literally the narrations. That is tafsir bil-athar. Tafsir al-ra'i is when you have your own opinions. So you say, and I think that this is this and that is correct, and that is incorrect, and so on. The problem with that is that tafsir al-tabari generally, you know, is often considered to be tafsir bil-ma'thur, tafsir of narrations, because that is the majority of what he does. However, it is not devoid of his opinions. Imam al-Tabari didn't just collate these narrations together, bring them together, and offer them to people. But he actually commentates, and he speaks, and he rebukes, and he criticizes, and he analyzes. And he does all of this within his tafsir. So one of the things that he mentions within the beginning of his tafsir, in his introduction, he says, and he criticizes tafsir bil-ra'i, tafsir of opinion. And he says that's when just people come, not basing it on any verse of the Qur'an, any principle of the sharia, any statement of the companions, and they just tell us what they think the verse means. And that is tafsir al-ra'i. He said it is not tafsir al-ra'i, when you have the principles of the Qur'an and the Sunnah and you take into consideration the statements of the companions and the scholars and then you commentate and analyze that and you draw from it conclusions and you derive from it rulings. And that is an important distinction to make in tafsir bil-ma'thur. Tafsir bil-ma'thur, yes, there are books of tafsir that only gather narrations, like Tafsir Ibn Abi Hatim, for example, is a good example, where the vast majority of it is just narrations. He has very little commentary. Very little does he add his own opinions, or he, say, he may say, my father said, my, but his father and his uncle and others are from the scholars of Islam. But Imam al-Tabari doesn't do that. And Imam al-Tabari is one of the scholars who most commentates on the opinions of scholars. 
and he will mention his own deductions and his own rulings and, and we will give examples of this and not only not only in tafsir but in Arabic grammar where he will say and some of the scholars of Arabic grammar said this but that's a weak opinion, it doesn't make any sense right? and he's actually literally going on making it, criticizing some positions of Arabic grammar amongst the scholars and even qira'at, he will say this qira'ah is incorrect and that qira'ah is more correct and that is sahih and that's ta'if and so on and he will go and he will analyze and he will commentate so this is also one of the things that he wanted to do in his tafsir rahimahullah ta'ala right? and so he brings all of this together within this single book of his tafsir as we said Al-Imam al-Tabri rahimahullah ta'ala he begins with a, a long introduction to his tafsir and he mentions within it a number of issues uh, from the sciences of the Quran and generally from Ulum al-Quran and Usul al-Tafsir. He mentions, for example, uh, the issue of the language of the Quran. Right? One of the classical debates among scholars of Tafsir is whether everything in the Quran is Arabic or whether the Quran has words in it that have been Arabized. They are foreign words that have been incorporated into the Arabic language. That is a classical debate amongst the scholars of tafsir. He mentions that. The Ahruf al-Sab'a, the seven dialects, for, for lack of a better translation. What is it referring to? What do they refer to and what do they mean? Covers that. Covers the principles of tafsir and how you get tafsir. He mentions, for example, who you take tafsir from and who you don't take tafsir from, from the early scholars. And how scholars would say, don't take tafsir from such and such a person, even though they are famous narrators of tafsir. But they were considered to be weak amongst them. He mentions narrations such as that as well. And he mentions, for example, um, other things concerning the verses of the Quran and the surahs of the Quran. Uh, and then he goes on to the isti'adha and the basmala, and then surah al-fatiha, all the way up to surah al-nas. Imam al-Tabri, he mentioned in his tafsir that what he wanted to do was he wanted to concentrate upon the opinions of the scholars, of the companions, the tabi'een, and the third generation of scholars known as the atba'u tabi'een, to bring their opinions together, their statements together, and to speak about them and to analyze them. And that's why very rarely do you find that he goes out of these three generations, goes beyond these three generations. So you rarely find, for example, that he mentions what Imam al-Shafi'i said, or Imam Ahmad said, or any of his contemporaries, or any of his teachers who are from below those three generations. Even though he could have, and I'm sure, that there were many narrations that those scholars had and many opinions that he took from them as well in terms of tafsir. But he limited himself to that. And that's an important principle. It is an important methodology. Because what he's effectively saying is that if this is the opinion that these three superior generations of Muslims, virtuous generations of Muslims agreed upon, then it's not allowed for someone else to come now with an opinion that comes outside or falls outside of this body of opinion that exists. So if the companions agreed that this verse has three possible interpretations and their students agreed and their students agreed, now, for someone to come five, six, seven, eight, nine hundred years later and say, actually, no, there's a fourth and a fifth and a sixth, and actually can mean this and that, then that's incorrect. Right? You can make contemplations. You can say, the way that I apply it in my situation, in our time, this is how you benefit from it, and so on. But to say that this is the meaning of the verse, which is what tafsir is, it is interpretation, it is speaking about what Allah is referring to, what Allah means by this verse. That is something which he says should be limited to those three generations in terms of their opinions of tafsir. And rarely do you come across a verse of the Qur'an in which there is no commentary from those three generations. Rarely will you come across a verse of the Qur'an that if ever that there's nothing from the companions, nothing from their students, nothing from their students, right? From those three generations of Muslims. So Imam al-Tabri says, if we have mutawatir narrations, that come to us from them, that is sufficient. And if we have authentic narrations that come from them, they're not mutawatir, but they are authentic narrations that come from two or three or four or five or whoever, however many, they come to us, then that is also something that we accept. And he says we base that upon the principles of the Quran that Allah mentions, the sunnah of the Prophet the Arabic language, the sha'ar, the poetry that the Arabs had, and taking all of this together and accounting for all of this, 
we can determine what is the correct statement of tafsir concerning this. And that's why you find rarely in the tafsir of Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, that he doesn't choose an opinion. That he doesn't choose an opinion. There are some scholars of tafsir who at times they don't, you know, they mention two generations, but they don't really say this is stronger or that is weaker or whatever. And Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, usually chooses one. And he usually says, that is the most befitting opinion to be correct, or the strongest opinion is. Although he will give some indication of the opinion that he is leaning to, or he will reconcile, and he will say, and what is correct is that all of them are referring to the same thing. There is no contradiction between any of those views, any of those statements. So this is something which Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, does. That's the basic outline of his tafsir. Now going into more detail, Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, his step-by-step process of doing tafsir generally, right, this, there's obviously exceptions to this, but generally speaking, in terms of his step-by-step way of doing tafsir, is the first thing that he does is he mentions the verse. And if it's a long verse, he will break it down into smaller components. So some of the longer verses, especially towards the beginning of the Qur'an, what he will do in his tafsir is he will mention the first portion of the verse and then go into the opinions of tafsir and then go on to the next portion of the verse so he will break it down rather than mentioning a long verse together and then mentioning all of the different statements concerning all of the different elements of that verse for example when Allah says وَبَشِّرِ الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ أَنَّ لَهُمْ جَنَّاتٍ تَجْرِي مِنْ تَحْتِهَا الْأَنْهَارِ كُلَّمَا رُزِقُوا مِنْهَا مِنْ ثَمَرَةِ الرِّزْقَى قَالُوا هَذَا الَّذِي رُزِقْنَا مِنْ قَبْلِ وَأُتُوا بِهِ مُتَشَابِهًا وَلَهُمْ فِيهَا أَزْوَاجٌ مُطَهَّرَةٌ وَهُمْ فِيهَا خَالِدُونَ Allah Azzawajal is giving glad tidings to those who believe and do righteous deeds that they have gardens of paradise under which rivers flow and then the food of Jannah and Allah Azzawajal goes into a lot of detail concerning their reward it's a long verse three four lines in the Quran rather than mentioning all of the statements of the scholars that speak about all of the different elements within that verse, he breaks it up. Stop. 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 And like this. And that's what he does in his tafsir. What he will generally do is he will give a general basic understanding of what the verse is referring to so before he goes into the details of who said what and the difference of opinions and mention narrations he will give a general understanding of what the verse is and this is what i often quote to you in our classes so when i say for example that imam al-tabari said that this is what this reverse first refers to that's his general statement without going into all of the detail of who said what and what narrations came and who narrated from who Without going into all of that detail, it is basically something which he does. Then, if there is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars, because sometimes the verse is something which is agreed upon, there's no difference of opinion in, amongst the scholars of tafsir. But if there is, and there are multiple narrations and multiple opinions concerning that, he will mention them. And he will mention the, that there is a difference of opinion. He will often say, وَاخْتَلَفَ أَهْلُ التَّأْوِيلِ فِي تَأْوِيلِ ذَلِكِ and you will find in the classical works of tafsir, I mean in the very early works of tafsir, because um, you know, the word classical now, which, which eras are referring to, but I mean the, the very early works of tafsir, you often find that the word that they use for tafsir is ta'wil, not tafsir. Tafsir is something which becomes more common as a name for the science and for what we're doing much later. The early generations would call this ta'wil, even the word tafsir is mentioned in the Quran, right? In Surah Furqan. So it's not the, the issue isn't that, but the name that was it was known by was ta'wil, right? And ta'wil, tafsir are very similar, right? In terms of meaning. Ta'wil is, the, is for example, what is mentioned in the hadith of the Prophet when he made dua for Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhuma, that he said, Allahumma faqihhu fi din wa'allimhu ta'wil. Oh Allah, give him understanding of the religion and teach him tafsir, teach him the interpretation of the Qur'an. But the classical word used is ta'wil. And perhaps it's based on that hadith that the scholars who then came, named the science or they would call it ta'wil. So he often says, ahlu ta'wil. My ahlu ta'wil. 
Or sometimes he says, Quran. There is a difference amongst those who made tarjuma of the Quran, gave meaning to the Quran, right? And uses the word tarajum. And that's because, you know, for example, Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma, from the titles that he's given is Turjumanul Quran. Right? Turjumanul Quran. For us now, tarjama has a different meaning. Right? In our modern context, tarjama is the meaning of the Quran, right? The translation of the Quran. That's what we refer to as tarjama. Obviously, in those times, there's no such thing as translation. Right? So for them, tarajum or tarjama means another form of tafsir. So when he mentions the difference of opinion, he will mention the scholars who said what they said, and he will make break them down into opinions. He will break them down into opinions. So for example, he will say, فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ Some of them said, and he will mention, for example, they said that this refers to Islam, or refers to the Qur'an, for example, or refers to the Prophet whatever it may be. And then he will say, ذِكْرُ مَنْ قَالَ ذَلِكُ To mention who said that. So he mentions the opinion first, then he says, who said that? Why does he say, who said that? Because he doesn't just give you names. You know, like what I do in tafsir, I will say, this is the opinion of Mujahid, and Qatada, and that's what I do, right? That's what we do. What he does is, this is who said this, then he starts mentioning his chain of narrators to each one of them. So for him, it's not just a matter of listing names. He will now start to list narrations with their chain from himself all the way back to that scholar or even back to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam if it is a hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then he will say after mentioning the first opinion, وَقَالَ غَيْرُهُمْ And others said, وَقَالَ آخَرُونَ Others said, or something like this. And then he will do the same thing, mention who said that. And that's what he does. And sometimes that's only one or two opinions, but sometimes it's seven, eight, nine, ten opinions. And he will do it for each and every single one. And what he does then, is if it's a statement, for example, of Ali radiallahu an, but he took that from three different chains, he will mention the three different chains. Rahimahullah, right? So this is a labor of love, right? This isn't just like, you know, ticking a box kind of thing. This is, no, I have this narration, not only from these scholars, but from another scholar, and from a third scholar, and I will mention to you, and he will say, an Ali radiallahu anhu mithlahu. So he won't repeat the narration itself because the narration is the same, the opinion is the same, but he will mention his different chains of narrators going back to him. For example, let's give an example of this so that it's clearer. The tafsir of Ihdina Sirat al-Mustaqim, Surah al-Fatiha. What does Sirat al-Mustaqim mean? What is the straight path referring to? Abu Ja'far rahimahullah, qala Abu Ja'far, right? so Abu Ja'far meaning Imam al-Tabari said that the Ummah has agreed from amongst the scholars of tafsir, that a sirat al-mustaqim is the clear path that is straight, that is not crooked. And that is what the Arabic language understands it to mean. So anything that is straight and not crooked, that's the general, you know, like tafsir of what the verse means, right? That it is referring to a straight path that is not crooked, meaning has no mistake in it, no contradiction in it, right? Nothing that is considered to be incorrect in it. And then he goes on and he says, so the greatest or the, the strongest of those opinions of tafsir in my view, indi, he says, is that ihdina sirat al-mustaqim means, oh Allah, keep us firm upon what you have chosen for us as the path that you are pleased with from statements and actions, and that is the straight path. For whoever has been guided to what Allah Azza wa favored the, the prophets with and the siddiqeen with and the shuhada with, then that is the path of Islam. And it is to accept the message of the prophets and to hold on to his scriptures and to work in accordance to them and to stay away from that which they warned from and to follow the methodology of the Prophet of Abu Bakr, of Umar, of Uthman, of Ali and every righteous slave of Allah Azza wa All of this is the straight path. And what is basically done is he has brought together all of the different opinions of the scholars of tafsir, right, that he will now mention and brought them together and reconciled between them. He says... وَقَدْ اِخْتَلَفَتْ تَرَاجُمَةُ الْقُرْآنِ But the scholars of Qur'an or the Mufassirin of the Qur'an differed as to the exact meaning of As-Sirat al-Mustaqim. However, all of them fall under the meaning that we just gave. All of them come under the meaning that we just gave, meaning that I've reconciled between them. So he mentions the first opinion that As-Sirat al-Mustaqim refers to the Qur'an. As-Sirat al-Mustaqim refers to the Qur'an. Right? And that's something which he mentions, right? Holding on to the message of the prophets and the scriptures that they came with. 
and he mentions that this is the narration of Ali and Ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhuma. So just to give you an example of this, right? Ma ruwiyan Aliyan radiyallahu an, that he said concerning the Quran, it is the Sirat al-Mustaqim. He says, qala haddathana, qala haddathana Ahmad ibn Ishaq al-Ahwazi, qala haddathana Abu Ahmad al-Zubayri, qala haddathana Hamza al-Zayyat, an Abi al-Mukhtar al-Ta'i, an Abi Akhi al-Harith al-Awar, an al-Harith al-Aliyan radiyallahu anhu qal, as-Sirat al-Mustaqim, kitabullahi. So basically what he's done is he says, who mentioned this opinion? He'll give his statement, his, he'll give his chin narrators and the statement of Ali radiallahu an. For that one narration of Ali, he gives three different chains of narration. Right? Three different chains of narration to that one statement. And then he mentions something similar from Abdullah bin Mas'ud. He then goes on to mention the second opinion, that As-Sirat al-Mustaqim refers to the religion of Islam. And he mentions that as the opinion of Abdullah ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud also, and Muhammad ibn al-Hanafiya, rahimahumullah, radiyallahu anhum. And then after mentioning those narrations, he mentions the third opinion, that it's referring to the Prophet sallallahu and following his sunnah. And that is the opinion also mentioned of Ibn Abbas and Abu al-Aliya and Hassan al-Basri, rahimahullah ta'ala. And all of this, like, just to cut it short, because it's all narrators and narrations and narrators and narrations. But that's basically what is done. And then he says, at the end, and you know, the stronger opinion is the one that we chose, right? That all of this comes back to the same interpretation that we gave. All of them referring to the same thing. The Sunnah is Islam and the Quran. All of them complement one another. You can't have one without the other. And so therefore he's establishing also his methodology of it being something where the scholars sometimes give tafsir by way of example, as we've mentioned before. One of the other things that Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala does is he mentions the qira'at. Not every book of tafsir deals with qira'at. But Imam al-Tabari does. Yaqut al-Himawi, rahimahullah ta'ala, who's a scholar who um, has a book that he literally compiled all of the scholars that came before him and all of the books that they authored. And it's a good reference point because many of those books are lost over time. Right? So we know, for example, the Tatar invasion, you know, Genghis Khan and his crew, when they came and they decimated Iraq and all of that. They destroyed many of the manuscripts and the early works from those scholars. Anyway, he mentions in his book that Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala had a book in Qira'at. He said, lahu kitabun jalirun fil Qira'at. He has an amazing book in Qira'at. I saw it in 18 volumes. I saw it being 18 volumes long. He says, he mentions with it, the Qira'at that are acceptable, the Qira'at that are shad, that are peculiar. And not only that, but then he goes on to mention why, and he goes on to explain them and the differences between them. He goes into an immense amount of detail. And we mentioned last week that Imam al-Tabri is from the teachers of the scholar Ibn Mujahid. And Ibn Mujahid is considered to be from the earliest people who wrote and compiled the science of Qira'at. Right? He's the first one who brought together the seven, what we consider to be the main Qurra, the seven different Qurra. He was the first to this. Imam al-Tabri is the teacher of that scholar. It said that Ibn Mujahid in the month of Ramadan, after leading Taraweeh, he would be with his students and he would pass by the masjid of Imam al-Tabari, where Imam al-Tabari was reciting Quran. It said that Imam al-Tabari had an amazing voice, amazing recitation. And Ibn Mujahid would stop and he would listen to Imam al-Tabari's recitation. His students would say to him, why, why do you stop here every night to listen to Imam al-Tabari when you are the scholar of Qira'at, right? you're, the, you're the reference point in this science. He would say, I don't think that Allah has given to anyone on the face of the earth recitation like the recitation of Imam al-Tabari. Right? So he was someone who used to look up to Imam al-Tabari in this field in which he is himself the expert and the specialist. So Imam al-Tabari mentions the Qira'at and sometimes he will also commentate on them. Right? So for example, a couple of weeks ago in Surah Takathur, when we were speaking about the verse, لَتَارَ al jahim." We said there's a second qira'a which is, anyone remember? La tara wunna al jahim and la tura wunna al jahim with a dhamma. La tara wunna al jahim, la tura wunna al jahim. The second qira'a is a qira'a of Ibn Amir al Kisai. These are from the seven. It's a mutawatir qira'a. But Imam al Tabri, when he mentions this, he says, but the qira'a of the majority is stronger. They're both correct, right? There's not, it's not like one is a weak or a peculiar qira'ah, but sometimes he even commentates. He says, because from a linguistic point of view, 
from an Arabic grammar point of view, from an eloquence point of view, that is something which is more well known and more well established amongst the Arabs. And that brings me on to another point that Imam al-Tabari goes into great detail in his tafsir, and that is Arabic language and grammar. He considers it to be from the most important components of tafsir to have a mastery of the Arabic language, to understand Arabic, its grammar and its rulings and its poetry, because much of Arabic language and its rulings is taken not only from the Quran and the Sunnah, but the poetry of the Arabs and what they consider to be acceptable in terms of their speech and in terms of what you could and couldn't say in terms of Arabic language and grammar. And Imam al-Tabri follows the school of Arabic grammar of Kufa. And I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. You have the Basri school and the Kufi school. The Basris are a lot more regimental in terms of what they accept. The Kufis are a lot more easygoing in terms of what they accept, in terms of poetry and, and everything else. And so their rules are a lot more easier and laxed. So Imam al-Tabari often mentions this. As long as they don't go against the opinions of the scholars of Arabic grammar, don't conflict with, don't contradict with the statements of the scholars, of the companions and the tabi'een. So if there's an opinion of Arabic grammar, but it goes against what the scholars said, the verse means, doesn't accept it. But if it doesn't conflict, he puts also a lot of importance and emphasis within this. So Imam al-Tabari is someone who will do this. And he will not only mention the different opinions amongst the scholars of Arabic grammar, but he will criticize what he considers to be incorrect. And he will openly say, and that opinion is incorrect. And that opinion is not, not in accordance to this. And that. He will go into this type of detail. And that's because he was also a specialist, in our, uh, an expert in Arabic grammar and in the poetry of the Arabs. So Imam al-Tabari, one of the things that he doesn't do in this, which is different to his qiraat, different to his fiqh, different to the opinions of tafsir, rarely when it comes to Arabic grammar does he mention the names of the scholars who took those positions. But rather he will say that the grammarians of Kufa said, and Basra said, and he refers to them in general terms. Rarely does he say, for example, Al-Kisai said, or Al-Farra said, or whoever, he doesn't name those early scholars of Arabic grammar. He mentions them in general terms, right? And I don't really know the reason for this, but perhaps, and Allah knows best, is to show that what is most paramount when it comes to tafsir, what always takes precedence, is the statements of the companions and the scholars in terms of tafsir. Language and linguistics would always come second because the understanding of the companions of the Quran and its language and the Arabic was far greater than anyone who came after them, radiallahu anhum ajma'in. So for example, verse 79 in Surah Ali Imran, Allah Azza wa Jal says, مَا كَانَ لِبَشَرٍ أَنْ يُؤْتِيَهُ اللَّهُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحُكْمَ وَالنُّبُوَةِ It's not befitting that Allah should give to any human a scripture or wisdom or prophethood. ثُمَّ يَقُولَ لِلنَّاسِ كُونُوا عِبَادًا لِي And then that person should turn around and say to people, worship me. وَلَكِنْ كُونُوا رَبَّانِينَ But rather what he says is be Rabbani. Rabbani is a devout scholar, is a pious scholar, is a person who is devout to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rabbani. Al-Imam al-Tabari goes into the tafsir of, of this word Rabbani. And he says Rabbani, in my opinion, he says, is the one who doesn't just teach people, but he is a murabbi, someone who nurtures them someone who guides them, someone who advises them, someone who helps them rectify their issues and their affairs. So he says that it's not just the word Rabbani, it's not just about teaching, but it's also to have an added element where you have knowledge, but you have fiqh and understanding and you bring them together and you help people better themselves. You're like someone who nurtures and rectifies them rather than simply teach. He says, because when Allah Azza wa mentions Ahbar in the Quran, Right, the rabbis and the priests, he says they are the scholars of those nations. They are the people of knowledge. But Rabbani is a greater level, a higher level. And that's why the prophets of Allah were not just people who taught, but they were people who educated and nurtured. They were people who advised, and people who rectified, and people who inspired others to become better and actively helped them to do so. That is the meaning of Rabbani. And he takes that from the linguistic meaning. Because from Rabbani, we have Murabbi and Tarbiya, and all of these words have the same root word. 
and tarbiya means to nurture right what you do to your children is you give them tarbiya right that's to nurture them so it's not just about teaching but it's about leading by example and showing through character and by dealing and by interactions how someone can become better he says that is what allah Azza wa is referring to in this verse and that's why imam he says mujahid said they are higher in level than the ahbar and the scholars allah Azza wa says that the prophets were not just sent to be teachers but to be murabbin right Sheikh Mahmoud Shakir rahimahullah ta'ala who was one of the scholars who, who edited Tafsir al-Tabari, one of the old prints of Tafsir al-Tabari, he was one of the people who edited this Tafsir. He said, just annotating himself, he commentated on this as he was editing Tafsir al-Tabari, he said this is something that you will rarely find even in the books of language, this benefit from this word and how it works. He says you won't even find this in the books of language that this is an added component to the meaning of the word Rabbani. And I bring this example just to show you that Imam Al-Tabri doesn't just focus purely on the tafsir, but he's focusing on the Arabic and he's focusing on the qiraat and he's focusing on so many different components when he's discussing tafsir. And that's why you have people, for example, today who do their PhD on deriving from the tafsir of Imam Al-Tabri, his fiqh manhaj, his fiqh madhab, from his tafsir because his tafsir is that extensive, right? Or his aqeedah, right? From his tafsir. And so you can literally take from this one book so many different sciences and so many different points of benefit. One of the other things that he does mention is Israeliyat. He mentions the uh, Judeo-Christian traditions within his tafsir, but often what he does is he mentions them with narrations, with chains of narrators. So Imam al-Tabri in his tafsir, he mentions chains of narrators for everyone. One of the things that he doesn't do is he doesn't commentate on those chains. He doesn't say they are weak or authentic. Won't say that that narrator is acceptable or unacceptable, trustworthy, untrustworthy. He doesn't. And that seems to be because his methodology in this is that he's giving you the chain of narration. You should be able to determine that for yourself. And obviously he's not talking to you know people like me and you right in 2020. He's talking to his generation, right, and his students and people who have a certain level of scholarship and certain level of knowledge, that they should be able to make that determination as to whether those chains of narrators are acceptable or unacceptable. So he doesn't commentate on that. But he will mention, for example, Israeliyat. And he mentions them in, the, in his book and he will commentate on them. Right? And I want to just give you a quick example of this. In the story of Adam السلام, in Surah Al-Baqarah, verse 36, um, was in Surah Araf, I think Surah Araf, verse 36, when Shaitan comes to Adam السلام, and his wife in Jannah and he whispers to them and tempts them to eat from the tree and he makes an oath to them that I am sincerely advising you. Right? And then Imam Al-Tabri mentions the different narrations, how did Shaitan go back, how did Iblis go into Jannah when Allah has expelled him from the heavens, how does he go in? And then there's narrations that he went as a snake and he did this and he did that, and you know, all of this stuff and, and he ate and the tree that uh, Adam ate from was apple tree or this. All of these narrations, none of them are from the Prophet but they are Israelite traditions. You'll find them in Judeo-Christian texts and so on, that they said that this happened and that happened. Al-Imam Al-Tabri, after mentioning all of this, just to show you his level of scholarship, he comments on this. He says, وَأَوْلَى ذَلِكَ and the strongest of all of these narrations are that which we find to be uh, to be not in conflict with the book of Allah Azza wa Jal. So what, a, what is in agreement with? The Quran. And he says, and also what the Arabs accept, because one of the opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir is that uh, Adam t was tempted by Iblis. He came to him in his heart. He just whispered to him. There wasn't a physical presence. It didn't come in any form didn't see him, but it's something that happened in his mind. Imam Al-Tabri says that's a weak opinion. The Arabic language doesn't accept it because Allah says in the Quran, وَقَاسَمَهُمَا He made a promise. And a promise is only made if there's someone in front of you verbally making a promise. Right? You can't make a promise if you're just sitting in front of me quietly. I can't take from you a promise. A promise requires a physical presence who physically speaks and verbalizes a promise. So he says, therefore, the Arabic language must also be taken into consideration. 
has to be in accordance to the Quran, what Allah mentions in the story, has to be in accordance to the principles of the Arabic language. And he says, if that is the case, then so long as what is mentioned in those narrations doesn't go against what we have, then it's possible that it is true. So he doesn't reject the opinion that Iblis came in the form of a snake. He says, it's possible. I don't know. And he says, it's possible. And maybe it is. And maybe it is not. He says, generally his position on this stuff is that Allah didn't mention it because there's no benefit in knowing it. And not knowing it doesn't harm you. So for example, in Surah Al-Ma'idah, when he's mentioning the story of the Ma'idah, the table spread, that the disciples of Isa السلام, asked Allah, you know what they call the Last Supper, that the table spread be descended from the heavens. He mentions the opinions of the scholars concerning the type of food that that came with. Was it meat? Was it bread? Was it the fruits of Jannah? And Imam At-Tabri says at the end of that, and all of this really doesn't make a difference. Not something that you should spend too much time and effort researching. Because to know what food they had or didn't have doesn't benefit you, and not knowing doesn't harm you. Right? And that is his position generally in this type of issue of tafsir. He goes into fiqh in great detail, inshallah ta'ala, we don't have um, too long left. He goes into fiqh in great detail, as we said. You know, he started off upon the Shafi'i method, but then he goes on to discussing his own, uh, his own method. You'll find this within his tafsir in verses of Hajj, in verses in which there are rulings of Islam. He will mention the opinions of the scholars. And then he will give his correct opinion, what he considers to be the correct opinion. So for example, in Hajj, the ruling of Hajj for someone who is prevented from making Hajj in the state of Ihram is called Ihsar. Then there's an impediment, an obstacle that comes between them and arriving at Mecca and performing Hajj. What do they do? They sacrifice and they come out of Ihram. Right? But who is that allowed for? What kind of obstacle? Some of the scholars said anything that prevents you. Illness, you know, an enemy or whatever. Another scholar said, no, it has to be something that you're fearful of. Ihsar means that it's something that you fear. So just being ill, if it's not a fearful illness or it's not something that you fear, it's not something that stops you from making hajj. If there's fighting in some countries, but it's not going to directly affect you, you're not afraid of it, it's not really something that, it's not something that is a valid excuse. And he says, and that is the opinion that I choose. Right? So basically what he does is he brings the opinions of the scholars and then he will choose what he considers to be the correct opinion. As I said, with all of this, we could go into so much detail. I want to go into the final thing and that is how he um, often in his tafsir opinions chooses what is the correct opinion, what is the strongest opinion. He often says in his tafsir, what I consider to be the correct opinion. And then he will mention what he considers to be the correct opinion. Often it is based upon, as we said, has to be from that body of opinion that existed in the first three generations of Muslims. And then what he will often do is he will base it upon what he considers to be the strongest in terms of proof, in terms of it conforming to the Arabic language, in terms of it conforming to the general principles of the Quran or what is mentioned by the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. As an example of this, and inshallah we'll conclude with this example. At the beginning of Surah Al-Baqarah, when Allah Azza wa says, This is the book in which there is no doubt, it is a guidance, a guidance for those who have taqwa. Allah then says, Those who believe in the unseen, they establish the prayer, they provide or they spend from that which we have provided for them. So those are the first two verses. They believe in the unseen. Establish the prayer, they give charity. Allah then says in the next two verses, Those who believe in what we reveal to you, what was revealed before you. And they have certainty in the Akhirah. They are the ones who have received guidance from their Lord. And they are the successful. Amongst the scholars of tafsir, there is a difference of opinion. Some of the scholars of tafsir said, that the first two verses refer to the believers of this ummah only. And the second two verses refer to the believers of the Jews and the Christians who believe. So two verses for the believers of the Arabs and the, and the Muslims, and the other two verses refer to those people who believed in the past scriptures, and that's what Allah says, and that was revealed to you and before you. Other scholars said, no, it is the, um, it is the opposite. All, of, all four verses were revealed concerning the believers of this ummah. Nothing to do with 
the believers of past nations. And others said it is open to everyone. This ummah and others from this ummah, all four verses refer to everyone. So we have three opinions that you divide the two verses, first two verses for this ummah, the second two verses for past nations. Second opinion is that all four refer to only this ummah. The third opinion that all four refer to everyone who accepts Islam is a believer from the past nations, from this nation. Al-Imam Al-Tabri chooses the first opinion. He says what I consider to be the strongest opinion based on the context of the verses is that the first two verses refer to this ummah, the second two refer to the previous ummah. Right? Even though Ibn Kathir and others differ with this and they say it refers to everyone in his general. But just to show how he makes tarjih, how he considers to be something to be the strongest opinion. He bases it upon the context of the Quran, the fact that Allah is mentioning previous nations, scriptures that came before you. So he's taking in the language to account, he's taking in the statements of the scholars, and he's bringing all of that together, and that's what he's basing his decision upon, and Allah Azza wa knows best. So that's a brief methodology, and inshallah, I hope that he gives you an appreciation at least of Imam al-Tabari, his work, his efforts, and his methodology in, in his tafsir. And obviously there is far more to be said on this opinion, uh, on this uh, subject and topic, but it's something which um, you know, we don't really have the time for. Um, so inshallah ta'ala, I think, I know we have some questions, but hopefully inshallah ta'ala, I will uh, deal with those next week inshallah ta'ala. We're going to call it quits for today. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.